you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that on Tuesdays at 5.15, we're going to be trying to, Logan and I, uh, working together. And by the way, last week I said he was our pastoral intern. I don't know why I said that. He's not our pastoral intern. He's our pastoral assistant. Let me give credit where credit is due here. Um, He's going to be doing an interview each week on Tuesdays at 5.15 on Facebook Live of just asking some follow-up questions to the sermon. And so if you have questions, if there's something that I say this morning and it sparks a thought or it leaves you confused, you can email logan at ironcity.org or you can take the connection card and drop it anonymously in any of the boxes. And we'll try to answer that question uh, on Facebook Live. And of course, if you're not able to follow us live, you can always watch it later on. All right, 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 18 together. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked how that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after, this, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall be to be prophet in your place. Verse 17. The one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning I am thankful for the kindness of Jesus. 
I've failed time and again, day after day, year after year. And yet for my failings, he paid the price. For my failings, he credits me with his kindness and his righteousness so that before you I stand as one worthy through Christ. I pray this morning that you would find each of us in our failings, that you would minister to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to remind us that he has taken our failings upon himself and that he has credited to our account his great successes. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So 2021 has been termed the Great Resignation. They say that after 2020, which 2021 came in, that over the course of that year, we averaged 4 million, 4 million job resignations per month in the United States. 4 million per month. In fact, going forward into 2022, the outlook doesn't look, didn't look much better. The estimate is that in 2022, it's going to be something like 20% of all people in the U.S. are going to resign from their positions. Would it surprise you, though, if I told you that in vocational ministry, the statistics are even worse? That, they, that, that Barna has done a research. Barna is a, a, a research firm that researches really life with inside the church and life inside ministry and kind of what's going on, trying to keep their finger on the pulse of, of what's happening. And what they said is that four out of every 10 pastors in the United States is contemplating resigning from their position. Now, why is this? Why is it so many people are leaving their jobs? Why is it that so many pastors are considering uh, resigning from their churches? Well, if we look back to 2020, it's pretty apparent, isn't it? I'm certain that there are a lot of factors that are in play, and I'm certain that there's a lot that's going into it. But at a minimum, we know coming out of the pandemic, our normal was rocked to its very core, wasn't it? That for many of us, we came into 2020 with such high expectations and such great excitement and and anticipation of what the year would hold. And it was like, man, the world just jerked the rug out from under us, wasn't it? And so you didn't know if your business was going to make it. You didn't know if your job was still going to be there. You didn't know if your loved ones were going to survive and come through. You had to navigate the uncertainty of the unprecedented times. And then you factor into that a hotly contested election, the uh, politicization of the... What was that? Did y'all hear that? I didn't just imagine that, did I? Okay. In my mind, there's a chance, you know. There's a chance I've got something going on in my ear or something, you know. but, but you, you factor into all of that just the insanity of the culture and the outrage culture and figuring out what are we going to do with masks? What are we going to do with government mandates? How are we going to process uh, the worship within the church? What if all the people that I've worked with, all, what if they have different perspectives for me? My, my employer expects this, but my personal conviction is this. And so not only did we, were we wading through the uncertainty of everything, we were wading through the, the approach and the response to everything. And it seemed like no matter where you were, everybody was on a different, on a different side of things, didn't it? 
It's like the volume of our lives, the temperature of our lives got turned all the way up. And so through sheer adrenaline and perseverance, we make it through 2020. But by the time we get to 2021, we're all running with our tongues hanging out. We're angry at people. We're frustrated with our employers. We're, we're uncertain about what's going on in our lives. We, we don't really know what normal is going to be going forward. And so people are just like, I'm done. I'm out. Count me out on this. If you, if you have, just as a, a side note, if you want to have any idea about just how stressful this was, go and talk to a teacher about what it was like dealing with the masks in school. Whatever sites you fall on, just go and ask these people who are responsible for our children, who are only supposed to carry out and do what they've been instructed to do and care for the children. Go and talk to them about how, how they're feeling coming out of 2021. Many of them, if they had the opportunity to retire, they did. A lot of people, if they could quit, they did. If they could go home and rest, rather than pressing on another year or two years or five years, they just said, I'm out, I'm done, I can't go another step. This happens to teachers, this happens to business leaders, and this happens to pastors. And what we see in 1 Kings chapter 19 is this happens to prophets too. This happens to prophets too. That we're coming out off of this great spiritual high for, for Elijah that's culminated after three and a half years of drought. And you can imagine, he's being sustained on adrenaline and sustained at the hand of God. And he gets to the other side, his fire has fallen down from heaven. But normal doesn't come. Life doesn't get simpler. It doesn't get easier. Elijah says, I'm out. And I want you to see as Elijah here in 1 Kings chapter 19 begins to cope with the realities of his perceived failure, what God has to say about it. I wonder how many of you feel like a failure this morning. I wonder how many of you are carrying around that guilt, that frustration, that disappointment with yourself, that disappointment with your life. 1 Kings 19, Elijah has something to say to us about that. First, I want you to see that failure makes us want to resign. Failure makes us want to resign. If I were to use three words to describe 2020 through 2022, the three words you could probably use are fear, anger, and, and failure, right? For a lot of people, they feared whether or not they were going to make it through the pandemic. They feared whether or not their life was going to survive, that they were going to maintain their life. They feared the lives of the people around them. And if they didn't fear losing their life, they feared losing their livelihood. There was the uncertainty of whether their job would still be here. And if they didn't fear losing their livelihood, they feared losing their way of life, the way they've understood the world. And as a result, they became angry. We become angry. We become angry at each other. We become angry at our politicians. We become angry at the circumstances, at the situation. We have this low boil frustration that we almost don't even know. We just find ourselves more on edge than we typically are, lashing out more than we typically do. And for many of us, that culminates with a burgeoning feeling of failure. My business isn't where I thought it would be by now. My family member didn't make it. I wasn't able to, to come out of this as financially stable and sound as I was before. My retirement, I have watched, it has, it has declined. And you feel, you feel like a failure. Elijah feels like this. 
And matter of fact, we're going to see Elijah make a series of statements. And probably, if you can identify with what I'm saying in any degree at all, you're going to be able to identify with the statements that Elijah makes. He says, first of all, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You'll see that the, the narrator says this about him explicitly there in verse 3. It says, then he was afraid. So here's Jezebel. Jezebel, after this great moment in which the 450 prophets of Baal are slain and the fire falls and the sacrifice and the Lord shows that he is the Lord, he is God, he is the only one that he reigns over Baal and Baal is impotent. Jezebel finds out and she says, let what happened to those prophets happen to me if you're not one of them by tomorrow. There's a 24-hour ultimatum, a bounty that's put on Elijah's head. And Elijah, it tells us point blank, he's afraid of what's going on. Now, if you read this in the context of what's just taken place in 1 Kings chapter 18, his fear seems irrational, doesn't it? Literally, this dude prayed about 10 syllables and fire fell out of the sky. It's obvious that God has his back. It's obvious that he has a relationship with the Lord, that the Lord hears him and answers him when he calls upon him. It's obvious that he alone can stand and and, uh, oppose 450 false prophets because there is one who is greater than him that is with him. And so we come out and we see such weakness, such fear in the life of Elijah, and it feels irrational, doesn't it? But the truth is, is it seems valid too. It's irrational because of what he knows, but if we'll allow him to be human for just a minute, it's valid because of what he sees. I mean, imagine, this is a cumulative effect for Elijah. Uh, this is, life has not been simple for him the last three and a half years. He's lived on the run from the king. He had to be fed from the mouths of of ravens, unsure what that was going to look like until he got there. Then the brook dries up. He has to go and live with a widow. She takes care of him. The Lord provides, but, but that's kind of a strange way to live. He's living outside of the territory of Israel, outside of his homeland, on the run with people that he hardly knows. Her son dies. He has to work through that. Then he has to go through this great confrontation there with, with king. You can imagine that it seems like Elijah, like many of us in 2020, is just running with his tongue hung out, not sure how he's going to cope with what he's facing. And then it seemed like the breakthrough came. There's probably been a moment over the last two years where he thought, okay, okay, we're getting back to normal. Okay, something that this feels like it's supposed to feel. And then, and then on the other side, another disappointment comes. Another change happens. Another loss is experienced. And you just think, Lord, I don't know how much more I can take. Can you, can you relate to Elijah here? So, so Elijah has this gap in his mind. He, it's irrational to be afraid because of what he knows. He knows that God is with him. He knows that God will deliver him. He knows that God will protect him. But it's valid because of what he sees. And as people of faith, that's the tension, isn't it? That there is a gap between what we know and what we see. That there is a gap between what we know and what we see. And because there's a gap between what we know and what we see, there's a gap between what we know and what we feel. We feel that many of us are very prone to have our feelings and our our worries and our anxieties and our concerns tied to that which we see rather than being anchored into that which we know. And the hard part is, is that if you're like me and you know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, 
You know that he has sent the Spirit to help us in our weakness, to seal us as his children. You know that you are a co-heir and that one day there will be no more tears and there will be no more worry and there will be no more suffering. You know all of that and it leads to an even deeper despair because you feel overcome by anxiety. This gap, this gap seems to be punctuated, in fact, by what you know. And that's why we say what Elijah says next, I failed. I've failed. I'm done. I, I've worked and I've tried and it hasn't worked out. I have failed. I am nothing but a failure. I want you to see where I'm getting that uh, from the text. If you look in verse 4, it says, But he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better. That's failure language, isn't it? Than my father's. Why would he say, I'm no better than my father's? What does he mean by that? He's talking about the prophets that have gone before him. What did the prophets that have gone before him fail to do? They had failed to eliminate the idol worship from the life of Israel. Here, Israel would have prophet and king and prophet and king, and yet Baal would persist. The altars to the false gods would persist. The Asherah poles would still exist. The high places would still exist. Elijah thought he would be the one. Elijah thought he would be the one, that he would live a life that is fervent. He would live a life that is committed to the Lord. He would live a life that is courageous and filled with faith before the Lord. And living fervently, faithful to the Lord, he was convinced that he would be the prophet that God would use to deliver Israel from the worship of Baal. And there, as the fire fell upon the sacrifice, it looked as though he was right. It looked as though he was true. it was true until, until he realized that Jezebel had went unharmed. Until he heard that there was still a bounty after his, on his head, just like it had been for three and a half years prior. And he's, faced to, he's forced to face the reality, he hasn't changed it. The worship of idols still exists among Israel. And so he says, I failed. I'm no better than all of the other prophets. I'm no better than all of my fathers. Just as they had failed to eliminate the idolatry of your people, I have failed to eliminate the idolatry of your people. I have nothing to show for my work and my effort except the exhaustion that's in my bones. Except for the misery that I'm facing. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. I wonder how many of you... you put forth genuinely your best effort in school. You work harder than the people that are around you. And it seems like your grades don't get better. You go to practice and you go to the weight room and you try, you try to be the athlete that you desire to be. And it doesn't matter that you wake up earlier and it doesn't matter that you're willing to stay later. It doesn't matter that you run sprints and you don't, you don't loaf through the end of the line. It doesn't matter. You're just not the athlete that other people are. You come home and it seems like when you hand your report card over to your mom and your dad, you're just waiting for the disappointed look. You feel like a failure. All you have to show for your effort is exhaustion. Think about moms. Man, you have a job, most of you, and you come home and you try to have a dinner that's somewhat wholesome and got all the different colors of the rainbow on the plate, you know the thing, right? And, and you, you stay and you pack the lunches and you iron the clothes and you read the Bible story and you come on a Saturday and all you're looking forward to is hanging out with your kids and what do they do on that Saturday? They reject you, they disrespect you and they act like they don't even want you around. And you think, I'm, I'm a failure. I've tried so hard. I mean, some of you business leaders, 
you've worked to do, hold your company together through the last two years. You felt the weight of other people's livelihood hanging over your head. You felt that. You've watched as the numbers decline, as the, as the supply chains run out, and you have to go to customers that you've had for years and say, I can't help you and take care of you the way I've always helped you and taken care of you. And you thought two years later you'd be on the other side of this thing. But like Elijah, what you've discovered is normal's not coming. No, normal's not coming. And so now, as the numbers have not improved as the way that you thought they would, now that the supply chain has not come back the way that you expected it to, you think, man, I guess I'm just a failure. I guess I'm just a failure. And so like Elijah, you want to say, I quit. I quit. Elijah turns in his resignation to the Lord. Think of that. He turns in his resignation to the Lord. He says, it's enough. It's enough. Just let me die. Let me move out. I want to show you even more specifically where I'm getting the resignation. It says that when Elijah, verse 3, he arises and he runs. Okay, so he's running away. He's running away from the place of service the Lord has had him. He's running away from the ministry that he's had. All right, so he runs and he comes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Remember, there's two different kingdoms. Elijah is a prophet of the kingdom of Israel. So he leaves the place where he is a prophet to go into the land of Judah where he is not a prophet. There's a, it's a whole other kingdom, whole other set of prophets at that point, right? He goes into Judah. There, he drops off his, his, uh, his servant and he keeps running into the wilderness. Now, he's left Israel. Then he's went into Judah. Now he's left Judah. He's went into the wilderness. He's like, I'm done. I'm on the run. I quit. I'm out of this. I can't take it anymore. I can't be faced with being a failure anymore. If all I'm going to be is tired and frustrated, I'm out. How many of you are on the edge of quitting? Only between you and God, how many of you are on the edge of quitting? Maybe you are about to quit your job. You just think, I can't keep going to that dead-end job every day and feeling the way that I feel for no appreciation and apparently no upward movement. How many of you perhaps are, are considering quitting on your marriage? You think of all the work that you've put forth and how hard you've tried and all the efforts that you made and the counseling that you've been to and the books that you've read and the things that you've done and the prayers that you've prayed and the tears that you've cried and you just think, you just think, I can't do it another day. It's not working. It's not worth it. It's not helping. I'm just tired. How many of you are thinking honestly about the possibility of abandoning your family? I bring it up because it happens. I bring it up because I've seen it happen. I've sat across from the table where it's happened. And so I'm not foolish enough to believe that it's not possible. This morning, there is someone here, there is a man or a woman, and you're ready, you're ready to get on the airplane and go to the other side of the country and just not deal. How many of you are ready to give up on faith in Christ? You think, you think, in my mind, if Faith in Christ is going to leave me feeling like a failure anyway. If, if I'm still going to feel tired like this, if I'm still going to cope like this, if I'm still going to face all the struggles that I'm facing with, if I, I'm not better than anybody else that's around me, why do I need him? I quit. But you see, fear and anxiety and despair, feelings of failure, depression, they don't think straight. They don't think clearly. And I'm convinced that in 1 Kings chapter 19, more than one medical doctor has read 1 Kings 19 and said that what Elijah is facing is clinical depression. 
Don't think straight. And so what I want you to see is how God draws near to Elijah in the midst of his failure. Because what I am convinced of is I am convinced that what we learn in 1 Kings 19 is something that we see repeated throughout the scriptures and within the ministry of Jesus himself that failure draws God near to us. Failure draws God near to us. Now that's counterintuitive if you think about it. No other worldview or belief system in the world believes that. None, okay? If you worship another God, if you worship the career that you have, if you worship your upward movement in life, if you worship the address that you live in or the car that you drive or the family that you have, all of that is contingent upon your success. Every other God depends upon you making yourself worthy, proving yourself a success in their eyes, however that particular God defines it. However that particular God clarifies and lays out the law, so long as you live according to their law, so long as you live successfully, then you are invited, then you are received by that God. Then you draw out the good favor of that God, the good favor of your boss, the good favor of your friends. The good favor of the onlooking community or the good favor of your children. Whatever it is that you're tempted to worship. Christianity is the only faith that is intended for failures. It's intended for them. It's intended for us. Let me say that differently. Christianity was intended, the gospel is intended, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news specifically because it's for the failure. The only Christianity says that your prerequisite for coming to Christ is that you recognize that you are a failure, you're not strong enough, you're not successful enough, you're not faithful enough, you're not holy enough, you're not moral enough, you're not good enough. And once you recognize that, once you recognize that by all of the world's criteria, by all of the definitions that you've been handed, that you don't measure up and you aren't enough, now you're ready for the good news. That it's your failure that draws out the heart of God toward you. It's your failure that draws out the grace of God and the mercy of God toward you. In fact, what I think we see, you'll notice there, in verse 7, there's two different mentions. One uh, in verse 5, where it says, an angel touched Elijah. But then in verse 7, the angel comes up again, but this time he's given a specific name. It's the angel of the Lord. And I am convinced that throughout the Old Testament, when we read the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's an enigmatic phrase that's intended to, to raise our gaze even higher than mere heavenly beings. That what we have in the angel of the Lord is an Old Testament incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Let me frame that up a different way. We have Jesus right here. Jesus, making an Old Testament appearance. And he's coming to a person who is beaten down, downtrodden, afraid, feeling like a failure in the middle of depression. I want you to see how he cares for him. That what we see is that Jesus loves him with practical kindness. Jesus loves him with practical kindness. In other words, Jesus doesn't just come and start quoting Bible verses to him. That's powerful. That's important. That's meaningful. But but the angel of the Lord doesn't come to Elijah and say, hey, son, what are you doing here crying like a girl? Like, get up and be a man. Like, like what are you doing? Like, do you not know that the Lord your God is, is, uh, is greater than all the other gods? Do you not know the Lord your God is the one that sent the fire from heaven? No, Elijah, stand up and be a man here. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, arise and eat. Arise and eat. 
In other words, God understands the design of people better than people understand the design of people. All of us are, we are not, uh, we are, as God has designed us, as integrated people. That is, there is an inner man and there is an outer man. We are body and we are soul and those things work together. That if you are depleted physically, it impacts you spiritually. And if you are depleted spiritually, it impacts you physically. That our bodies and our, our spirits work in concert with one another. That if we are going to be healthy people, they must work simultaneously in health together. That we are able to be the people and thrive and flourish as God has intended for us to flourish. If you don't believe me, go and ask a medical doctor who has no connection to Christianity. And what they will tell you is a large percentage of the ailments that plague us are stress and anxiety related. They're, in other words, they're issues of the inner man. They're issues of, of, of the difficulties of processing the realities of life. So what we see is that the difficulties of the inner man affect the outer man, affect the physical, the spiritual affects the physical, and the physical affects the spiritual. And so what does Jesus do? He says, before I can deal with the soul, I've got to deal with the body. But before, I can, before you're ready to be able to hear everything that I have to say and deal with everything that I'm going to confront you with, and he's going to have to say some things, and he's going to confront him, he says, we've got to renew and replenish you where you're physically depleted. So stand up and eat. Get up, wake up and eat. And then what does he do? He puts him back to bed. He puts him back to bed. He says, and he laid down again. The angel's there, and he, he has him eat and, and drink and have something, have something there prepared for him. And then he says, go back and, and take a nap again. This is probably the starting place for many of you. This is the starting place for many of you. If you feel worn down and run down, you may need a nap, man. You may need a nap. Let me just give a caveat here. To help a lot of marriages, to help a lot of moms, okay? Listen, Dad, they're just as much your kids as they are your wife's. There's just as much your responsibility as they are your wife's. You know what your wife may need? You know what the greatest thing that might, that the greatest step toward marital intimacy for you might be? Let her have the afternoon off, man. Take the kids and go do something fun with them and let her sleep. Let her rest. Let her put the things between her toes and the mask on her Like, Let her do the thing, you know? Let her do the thing. That what she may need is physical renewal. And one of the ways a husband should sacrificially care for his wife is by taking responsibility for his kids. And it's a double win. It's a win for everybody involved. What you may need is a vacation from work. You may need to go and see a doctor and have all your, your blood levels checked and make sure that your body chemistry is not out of whack. Man, that stuff affects you. And it doesn't just affect you physically. It affects you spiritually because you are an integrated person so that you can deal with all the stuff that's going on in your heart so that you can cope with all of the realities of failure and the fears of life and the difficulties that you're facing. Make sure, make sure that you're being cared for as a person. This is woven into the very design of God. Is there any secret why on the seventh day God rested? God didn't rest because he needed to rest. God rested so that you would know you needed to rest. The Sabbath is given to us so that we would have physical rest and spiritual renewal at the, at the same time. And I need you to hear me say that. It's okay to go to the, to the, 
uh, to the river and ride on a like that's that's enjoyable. I that replenishes me. Me, the staff and I, we did that actually this week. Like we need to be able to do things like that. That's not Sabbath alone, though. That's not Sabbath alone. It's not Sabbath to take a break from God, to take a break from the people of God. It's Sabbath to take a break from all of the craziness of life, to focus on God alone, to just be with God. And I wondered this morning, how many of you, you just need to be with God. You need the rhythm of worship into your schedule so that you can put down your phone and turn off your television and not worry about work and just focus on what God has to say to you. So he loves him with practical kindness, and then he ministers to him with personal gentleness. I think this is my favorite part. I think this is my favorite part. It says in verse 5, he lay down, this Elijah, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel that we know is the angel of the Lord. We believe to be Jesus. And it says that he touched him. That is, that Jesus is not here loving him at arm's length. He's there, and he's right in the midst of sleeves rolled up, doing what Jesus is, humbling himself, taking on the, the, the form of a servant, Philippians chapter 2, right here, all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And look how cool this is. It says, verse 6, that at his head a cake was baked on hot stones. Elijah needed to eat. Now, wouldn't you think God has provided in his creation some fantastic options? I mean, there's apples and blueberries and like all of the stuff, right? So you would think, you would think that maybe he would wake up and, hey, there's a blueberry bush. Or like, there's an apple tree, you know, right, right there hanging out. Go pick the fruit, eat, and be renewed. That's not the picture. Somebody baked for this man. And it was Jesus. Jesus didn't just tell him to go and find food. Jesus brought the food for him, to him, and prepared it for him. Do you see the posture of Jesus toward those people who are naturally harsh with themselves, like Elijah, like me, like probably you? That Jesus is gentle and lowly and nurturing toward them. Dane Ortland, in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, by, by the same title, he says that in all of the New Testament, there is one description of the heart of Christ. And Christ it gives the description of his own heart in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here's what many of us need. We need to turn down the volume of that condemning conscience. We need to turn down the volume of that harsh self-talk that's bouncing around in our minds, telling us what failures we are and how we're not measuring up. And we need to turn up the volume of that gentle and lowly voice of Christ that says, I have measured up on your account. I have accomplished for you. Come, turn up in your life the volume of the finished work of the cross that has been accomplished for you. You are not a failure. You are as Christ. You are as Christ. Do you see that? So what you notice is that he waits with a patient compassion. Notice that he says two different times that he had to lay down again, and then verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time. It, it always takes you longer to heal than you think it ought to. I've told you before my own struggles with depression. I've preached from this text on depression before. You can go back uh, on ironcity.org and find it. It took me two years, two years to come out of it. Two years. 
I thought that when my circumstances changed and when my life got better, I would flip a light switch and it was like a light switch, boom, the light would come on, I would be okay, life would carry on, I would be back to normal, if we can put it in the pandemic language, right? No, it wasn't a light switch. It was a two-year crawl on my hands and knees by the grace and power of the Spirit of God. It always takes long. But the good news is, is that you can count on the patience of Christ to wait on you. That as many agains as it takes, as many agains as it takes, I want you to, that to resonate in your soul, as many naps as it takes, as many times as it takes you coming to church on sheer faith that God is going to say something to you today, even though I didn't feel like he said anything last time, as many times as it takes you by faith waking up and placing your confidence one more time in the strength, in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ himself, keep going because you can bank and count on the patience of Jesus. You see, many of us, we grew up in a home where a, a failure was met with a temper, where our failure drew out the temper of our dad, or our failure drew out the temper of our coach, or our failure drew out the temper of our boss. But I want you to see this morning that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what sets Christianity apart from every other worldview, what turns American concepts of religion on their head, is that what draws out the heart of Christ is not how good you are, but how weak you are, that your failure draws his grace and his mercy into your life. And as he ministers to the outer man, we see the second phase of his response to to Elijah that failure isn't what we think it is, that he begins to minister now to the inner man. And what do we think failure is? We think failure is when we don't get the desired outcome as a result of the invested effort, right? In other words, if I eat a salad for lunch today and I wake up tomorrow and I'm a pound heavier, I failed, okay? I, didn't, I, I invested the effort. I forsook the nibblers at Zaxby's and got the salad instead. You know what I'm saying? And so I wake up and I'm heavier. And I'm like, why didn't I just eat the nibblers, man? Like, what is this about? That for many of us, for many of us, we invest effort and we invest, we, we make an investment of our lives. And then when we see this, the outcomes different than what we anticipate, we believe that's failure, even though it may be affected by a thousand different circumstances that we have no control over. Even though it may be affected by somebody's opinion of us that's not true and we can't fix it. Even though it may be determined by an economy that we have no responsibility for. Even though it may be determined by a Congress that we have no control over. Even though it may be the results of the response of a rebellious child whose decisions we can't rule over. We believe that we're the failure. And so here is Christ ministering to Elijah to let him know that probably we're operating with the wrong definition of failure here. And I bet a lot of the anxiety and fear and depression and despair that's in this room is the result of operating with the wrong definition of failure. That you feel like a failure not because you've failed, but because you're not in control. That's what uh, God wants Elijah to see. He's carrying too much. He believes himself to be too important. He sees himself as the center of his own world, as though all of life, whoa, all of life is contingent upon him. 
And so I want you to see where I'm getting that. Okay, so verse 11, it says that Elijah goes out and he stands on a mount, okay? Now, remember, I've told you on more than one occasion that the Old Testament often teaches through geography, all right? So in other places, we don't have it here, it's told us that this particular mountain is Horeb. Horeb, or the Mount of God. Another name for this throughout the scriptures is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Now, some really significant things happen at Horeb. First of all, this goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where the burning bush appears to Moses in the middle of the day and says, I am who I am, and enlists Moses into the ministry to go and deliver his people. Now, here is God on Horeb, and he has spoken to Moses through the fire miraculously, that Moses might know who he is. Now, fast forward, God, through Moses, delivers his people. He brings them to the base of Mount Horeb, and there on the top of Horeb, he gives to Moses the Ten Commandments, and he makes his presence known to the people. And do you remember Exodus 20, how he makes his presence known to the people? There's a storm on the top of the mountain. Clouds come, and winds blow, and rocks are shaking. The ground is quaking beneath them. Now listen to what he says. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke into pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Does that sound familiar? And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Does that sound familiar? And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And the Lord, the Lord was in the whisper. Elijah believed that God was going to work through him in a miraculous way. The way that he had worked in Exodus 3 is the burning bush. He believed that he was going to make his presence known where in Exodus 20 he calls the people away from idolatry to recognize the presence of the Lord through the storm. But God's plan, God's plan was bigger than a burning bush and God's plan was deeper than a storm that was going to make evident his name. That God was content. He is teaching Elijah not just to work through the phenomenal, not just to work through the miraculous, but to work through the quiet anointings of kings, through the raindrops or the drying up of rain, through every speck of sand, through every bird that flies, through every moment of every generation, of every nation, God is there in the silence. You can't hear him. You don't sense him. You can't see it. But God is there, and he is at work to bring about the salvation of his people and the keeping of his word. Elijah believed that it was all contingent upon him. And God is teaching Elijah that it was not dependent upon his singular moment of phenomenal faith and miraculous manifestation. Rather, he was not the plan. He was part of the plan. And being part of the plan, he wasn't responsible for all of those other things that he could not control. You see, it is not failure for you not to be able to do what God did not design you to do. I want you to say that one more time. It is not failure for you to not be able to do what God did not design or intend for you to do. It is not a failure that you cannot carry more than you can carry. It is not a failure that you cannot fix what you cannot fix. It is not a failure that you cannot control what you cannot control. You can't control the decisions of your children. And you can't control the direction of our government. 
And you can't control the economy, and you can't control pandemics, and you can't control supply. You can't control it. And those things do not make you failures. Those things instead are opportunities of faith for us to put our confidence in the fact that even though we can't see him, and even though we can't hear him, and even though it seems like it's quiet, the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work in corrupt governments and the Lord is at work through random wars and the Lord is at work through droughts and the Lord is at work in floods and the Lord is at work through the people that you meet and the people that you know and the job that you have and the place that you are. The Lord is at work. It is too small a view of God. You understand God too little if you think he only works in the ways that are obvious. No, 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 no. No, God. God works in ways we can't see, in ways we can't comprehend. And what we can be certain of is that we aren't the plan, but we're part of it. We carry too much, and we feel too alone. We feel too alone. This was the real failure. This was the real failure for Elijah. Elijah, um, multiple times, is conf- on the first time is confronted by the Lord, then he's then the Lord reveals himself through the sides, and then he confronts him a second time. And Elijah says the exact same, what are you doing here, Elijah? And what does Elijah say? I've been very, verse 14, I have been very jealous or zealous or, or devoted for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That Elijah, because he believed that all of the plan of God was contingent upon him as the prophet, believed himself to be left alone out on an island as though he was supposed to be able to take care of all of it by himself. And there are probably some of you this morning and you think that all of your family is dependent upon you. The fate of your family is dependent upon you. The fate of your marriage is dependent upon you. The fate of your community is dependent upon you. The next generation, it's all upon you. And you are filling the weight so heavily. And here is the Lord saying to you as a prophet that believes that you are all alone as the mom or all alone as the dad or all alone as the husband or the wife or the leader or the whatever. You're not alone, man. You're not alone. Let's go back, okay? I hope that you're seeing, by making these connections back to Exodus, how powerful it is to see all of the Scripture connected together as one story. These things are coming up time and again, and we're beginning to see as we advance the storyline how they're pointing back and pointing forward at the same time. Something else happened at Horeb. And I read about it at the beginning of the service, Exodus chapter 33. Because of the worship of Baal, God tells his people, I'm going to let you go ahead and have the promised land. I'm going to let you go ahead and go on into Canaan. But my presence is not going with you. You've lost my presence. I'll give you the gift, but I won't give you me. And Moses goes and he begins to intercede on behalf of the people. He says, God, if your presence will not go with me, I do not want to go. I don't want to go. Let us stay here in the wilderness. Let us remain in Sinai. I'd rather eat from the sand in the desert than go to the land of milk and honey if your presence won't be there with me. And God responds to the intercession of Moses and he relents and he says, I will go with you because you have prayed and sought my face. I will go with you into the promised land and I'm going to give you a sign that my presence will be with you. And what was the sign? He took Moses to the cleft of the rock and he shielded him with his hand. 
And he allowed his very glory to pass by that Moses might see. He couldn't see it directly. It would have killed him. It would have struck him dead. But he could see it as his glory passed by. That there, there was the presence of the Lord. And the presence of the Lord was going to be with his people. And the presence of the Lord was going to provide for his people. And the presence of the Lord was going to protect his people. That Moses was going to go toward Canaan, but Moses wasn't going to go alone. Israel was going to cross the Jordan, but they weren't going to cross the Jordan alone. What does Elijah, what does he do? He brings and he stands at the entrance of the cave, the cleft of the rock. The Lord comes and he appears to him and Elijah goes and he begins to wrap his cloak around his face like the Lord shielding his hand. And the Lord is bringing to Elijah's mind that moment in Exodus 33 where I have promised you, you are not alone. You are not the only prophet. In fact, you've already met Obadiah. Let me remind you of that. You've already heard and know that Obadiah had a hundred other prophets that were devoted to me in the other caves. Here, let me let my glory pass by. Let me give you a glimpse into the plan that there are, in fact, seven thousand strong in Israel who have not bowed and kissed the feet of Baal. They're bowed and kissed the feet of Baal. Instead, they are a remnant. They are a remnant that has loved me because I have preserved them. I have persevered in my love toward them. I have kept their hearts toward me. You are not alone and I'm not finished. We're going to press on to the glory of Christ until my kingdom comes and this world is consummated beneath my, my benevolent rain. Oh, you see this morning, this morning you're not alone. It feels lonely, but you're not alone. It looks scary, but you're not alone. And so if Elijah calls us to do anything, he calls us not to quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. I know you're tired. Take a rest. I know she's tired. Give her an afternoon. I know you're, you're not thinking straight. Eat a meal. See your doctor. Recognize, recognize, you can't fix the world. You can't fix all the problems in your family. You can't bear all the weights in your church. You can't change the trajectory of your whole community. That's God's work. And God is at work. And God is with you. And you can trust him. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 